Hi, everyone. Welcome to our next video podcast with myself hosting and, of course, head of editorial Tristan D'Souza. Tristan, how are you doing? I'm good, Ian. Thank you very much. We're uh, opening up slowly but surely here in the UK, aren't we? So, I mean, there's excitement in the air. Spr- well, spring was in the air and then it snowed again. So right. uh, it's, it's, it's hard to know whether we're coming or going, but we're certainly good to go on here on, uh, on the podcast front. And I have to say, in the interest of an amazing segue, opening up is really how we decide <laughs> our first topic. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, as you know, there was this ship. And this ship got stuck. Uh This ship got stuck in a particularly difficult, sensitive, and constrained place in the world, um, i.e. the Suez Canal. Uh, Seven days or so went by. The global supply chain was kind of brought to a standstill. Mm. I mean, what are your thoughts on the level of vulnerability that this one choke point, which has always been a choke point ever since the Suez Canal uh, was built, Uh, What are your thoughts? Well, I was fascinated by this um, from the outset, just simply because it it caught everyone's imagination, didn't it? Giant ship gets, I guess, blown off course or not off course because it's very hard to be off course in a canal. Right. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like it was pointing, just ends up pointing in the wrong direction in a canal. And it's sort of, you know, seeing those pictures of ships backed up all the way in both directions uh, on either side of the continent of Africa is is quite a striking thing. And as you say, a very uh, visual representation of the supply of the global supply chain that, that we all benefit uh, quite strongly from. Um, I, I think in terms of uh, what it showed about the weakness of that, as you say, it's always been a choke point. Um, I guess maybe as uh, shipping has has has, has sh- the size of ships has increased, the likelihood of that happening may well have increased. I I, I don't know that for a fact, but you know um, the isolation of that particular point at which the ship got wedged was also of note. You know, I mean, it was it was hundreds of miles away from the nearest digger, and when the diggers got there, you know, those pictures of the tiny little digger and the ever given's nose, apart from spawning a load of really good memes, uh, you know, um, were, were, were also, I think, indicative, like a visual representation of the global supply chain. If something goes wrong, we are puny in the face of the sort of organizational challenges. And if things need to then go around the Horn of Africa, I mean, the increased cost and time really starts putting a strain on an already strained uh, global economy. Yeah, I mean, it's in, it's interesting to me because there's so many good cyber security, cyber metaphors on this particular thing. And it was, I think the thing that, that I found most interesting is, was there a plan? Like, clearly the fact that the digger shows up Completely inadequate for the task at hand. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. to deal with it. The other problem with the canal being blocked is getting um, the necessary resources down to that point. Like you said, either mm. overland in a hostile desert, or um, you know, directly sailing down the blocked canal, get it, trying to get around all of the other things blocked in the canal. Yeah. Um, you know, it's difficult to reverse out of a canal, you know, several hundred 
you know, miles. Um, yeah. So, so the the real the real question is is you know, and and the big takeaway for me was, what is the plan? For mm. when these type of things go sideways, right? Mm. Um, you know, and we saw, you know, dredging, and then finally, you know, an international response, really, um, and in order to get it unstuck and and get global trade moving again, I find it really interesting that we're so precarious, like you said, yeah. that that these events can happen, and we are the proverbial little digger machine trying to undig a giant ship. Um, you know that that almost has its own postcode. It's so big. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I mean, it was big, wasn't it? I saw, did you see that um, diagram which showed that it was? Uh, it had the Eiffel Tower, the Empire State Building, and then the Ever Given, and then the, the then obviously yeah. like the Burj Al Khalifa, which is like a kilometer tall. But I mean, it's like taller than the Empire State Building. Um, so yeah, a, a, a wonderful physical representation of, of 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 trade. But what I was reading um, earlier today about. Um, Samsung's moves in uh, diversifying its supply chain away from where it had previously been concentrated specifically and almost exclusively in China. So its its chips and phones and everything was uh, constructed at various points in China, but nonetheless in China. And over the last uh, year two, or, or, or maybe slightly more, they've moved factories from China to Vietnam and at various other points around the world in order specifically to combat something like either the ever given blocking the Suez Canal or a global pandemic in which uh, goods can't cross borders. And as a direct result of that, they've actually managed to maintain their uh, essentially making a profit from, from, from the products that they've been producing um, because of this diversification. And, you know, in the face of the pandemic, we've seen sort of calls for renationalization of businesses or rather sort of bringing back on shore, re-onshoring of businesses, right? So that, uh, you know, this new vaccine that we're going to be um, producing at all, all places, Barnard Castle, um, you know, which was which which Boris Johnson somehow managed not to say on live TV, which is quite incredible. Um, but, you know, that there, there is something of this. Maybe maybe this will be yet another push to governments who want to bring stuff back within their own borders. I, th I think that's an important consideration. And certainly the Chinese and Japanese are long-term thinkers. I would add to that diversification and resiliency uh, play against global climate change and, and, and planet warming and all of the perils that come along with that. Yeah. So speaking of perils, uh -huh. um, if you're a senior executive of a White House government department, uh, yeah. such as, oh, I'm just going to pull one out of the air here, the Department of Homeland Security. Oh, I wonder why you did that, Ian. Please and, tell me. And you may <laughs> have had uh, Russians in your inbox. Yeah, yeah. The the prospects of that are particularly chilling, are they not? Yeah. I mean, um, es espionage seems to have been stepped up over the last few years, right? I mean... 2016, we saw uh, election meddling. 2020, we also saw election meddling. Uh, and 2021, we appear to have seen massive governmental compromise on a scale that, uh, you know, we, we haven't seen before. And, uh, or at least from of the US. And if you are one of these departmental heads, uh, you're going to be baying for blood. Um, but I'm not entirely sure where that blood is going to come from. Because, you know, for all his 
uh, faults, and they were many, Donald Trump did actually put quite a lot of Russians uh, under sanctions. So, I mean, I don't know whether you can sanction Russia even more, uh, or rather, sort of, sorry, sanctioned, well, <laughs> they're fighting on two fronts, right? I mean, you're sort of looking at the Russians and Chinese, but, you know, um, sanctions, are, we were talking about this last month, you know, sanctions are one way of dealing with it, but uh, sort of a cyber kinetic response is also another way. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, I don't really see that Joe Biden has a lot of leeway either way. I don't know where you see the action going from here. Well, it's, it's really interesting to me. There's been some threats made and, you know, at the end of the day, how how much victim blaming are you going to put on the shoulders of SolarWinds and Microsoft um, in terms of, you know, the the compromise itself. But I am seeing, you know, we have two particular problems that I think are coming to apparent. We have no recourse or way of dealing with this that is anything less than an impotent response. Mm. And I think the other part of this is that um, response is extremely difficult when you're as vulnerable as, as the American government has now proven itself to be, despite the billions of dollars that they have invested in cybersecurity, when your director of one of the most important agencies that the United States relies on for homeland protection, when that information is compromised, the ramifications of that can be extreme. And I mean, knocking back, you know, counterterrorism investigations, espionage investigations, mm. all of those, um, you know, could have potentially been compromised to a certain extent. Now, the current narrative that we're hearing is that no secure, sensitive systems were compromised. And that seems to be the, the party line. Um, I wonder about that, because here's the, the reality. Those systems are incredibly complex. They're also difficult to use from a user perspective. Mm -hmm. How many times in the civilian world have people sent an important document to their personal email because they're having problems with their work system and they need to get things done? I'm not saying you should do that. And I'm not saying by any means that that's acceptable content, yeah. but it happens. For sure. And people make mistakes, right? People attach sensitive information and then send it to the wrong people. That yeah. type of information happens. So the idea that somehow we remain a lot safer because the secret, you know, and classified systems were uncompromised, I think is a distraction campaign from the reality of you're either compromised or you're not. You're either mm. pregnant or you're not. Right. And and the idea of, you know, kind of being able to like introduce nuance into it, you know, similar to some of the statements I've heard from companies that have suffered a, a horrific data breach. And they're saying, well, our plan for improvement is not an admission that we had problems to begin with. It's an opportunity for improvement. I feel is the needle somewhere in between. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it? Is it the case necessarily that you're either compromised or you're not? I mean, in this case, you know, um, 
yes, it's a fairly black and white deal. But, you know, there, there are, could it not be said that there are gradations of espionage, you know, like as there are gradations of sort of uh, importance of information, you know, classified and then sort of semi-classified. And I, I mean, I, you know, you'll know better than me. You, you have a military background. I certainly do not. Like, uh, you know, there are gradations of classification of information, right? So surely there's a defense to be made, <clears throat> or perhaps there's a defense to be made in terms of like, okay, they got a bunch of email addresses, but they didn't get blueprints for the next missile that we're going to be, uh, you know, constructing. Is that not an, a line that could be taken? It's such a difficult line because the counter argument is if I take 10,000 unclassified documents from you, but yeah. I take one secret document from you, how much harm has actually been done, right? Yeah. It's it's so difficult to put a proportionality around it, and I think you know this is this is where I'm going with this is that um, we are at a, a critical juncture where you know we see this clear chain of events that happened, and you know as the government, are you really going to turn around and crush the you know major industry? with punitive um, treatment. Now, it was fine to treat, you know, Huawei and Kaspersky, um, you know, with punitive treatment because they weren't American companies. They're not American companies, But are yeah. you going to really take, you know, Microsoft and, you know, Amazon and all of the others to task over this when clearly this was, you know, the vehicle that, you know, and, and this is sort of the, one of the problems that we're having conflating uh, cyberspace to physical space, right? Yeah. If I lend you my car in good faith, Tristan, and you then go and rob a bank with my car, okay, mm. um, I'm not responsible for what you did when I lent you my car. No. Because right? I acted in good faith, right? Mm -hmm. So why is it different for cyber? I think that's one of the problems here that 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 is going on is that you know if I use your product in a way that it wasn't designed for or I don't follow the best practices of impl implementation is it truly my fault that you got hacked so so there is this gray area that I think is is going to be very difficult and I feel that we're at a time where we need to have these conversations um and there needs to be some regulation because when you have three of the most powerful, you know, uh, software companies in the world stand up and say, yeah, there's no real compelling reason at the federal level that we have to report data breach. That's a yeah. concern. Yeah, sure. that is a concern. A hundred percent. I would agree. But I mean, I think, uh, it, you know, perhaps one of the reasons that there is such a conflation of the physical and the cyber is because of the bleeding between the two, right? And so it's actually very hard for those in power, those legislating, many of whom, let's face it, are of an older generation. And I think that actually also has to be taken into account. You know, when you, when we saw Zuckerberg go up in front of, uh, you know, uh, Senate, Senate committees, they were all, apart from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like 60 plus. And there's some of the questions they were asking were just devoid of reason. They were not helpful. They did not move the topic on. And I think actually this may be slightly symptomatic of that as much as anything else, that they are seeing this very much in sort of, for one of a more technical term, olden days way of looking at it, right? They're, 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 they're not uh, 
seeing the the bigger cyber picture. And as a direct result of that, we perhaps are not getting the legislation that we need. And that is actually a great way, because this episode seems to be the episode of segues. Boom, boom, boom. I love talking it. talking about the American problem. Yeah. And, and I see the American problem in, in three different silos. First of all, arguably one of the most advanced and, shall we say, prosperous digital economies, mm-hmm. right? However, it also appears that a ton of cybercrime of Americans... Oh on Americans or Americans against the world also happening in America. If you look at the IC3 data that the FBI publishes annually. And finally, as we unearthed uh, with some of our research, um, the problem of American infrastructure providers providing the means and the enablement to conduct cybercrime both both, um, on American uh, people as well as the world at large. How does Joe Biden or or the government of the United States fix what seems to be a problem that if you fix one issue, it directly impacts the livelihoods of um, the entire digital economy that the United States is 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 so based on? Yeah, I mean that that's a great question. Um, <sighs> I have a feeling you might have quite a few answers to this. So I I might turn it round at you and say, given what we've said in previous podcasts this year about Biden's plans, you know, like he clearly has a plan. He clearly is going to act. Um, He's clearly engaged with the problem. You know, I mean, he's been around government for a long time. When he was in the Obama administration, he was pretty switched in. His uh, chief of Homeland Security, um, national, sorry, national chief, national security chief, I think Jake Sullivan, is a young fella, like he's 40s max. Uh, Biden seems to have put together a team that can deal with these problems. But my question to you is, given all of those problems that you outlined, Americans on Americans, foreign activist actions on American soil, which can't be investigated by the American government. Um, is it going to be enough for just the American government to do it? Is it really just the responsibility of Biden? Or does there have to be a supranational uh, response to these sorts of threats? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting situation. But, you know, I feel like we're sort of at this situation where the problem is getting anti- it's it's getting anti-business. I think cybercrime oh, okay. is starting to take too big a chunk out of it. And the real question comes down to like when you look at it at the internet service providers level and the infrastructure provider levels, it seems to me that we could do and have more scrutiny of the companies that um, are are and their customers. And more visibility of that. And I and I think that one of the problems is, again, and this is always the juxtaposition of trading convenience for security. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed now some providers, uh, SendMail being a good example, have a lot more scrutiny around who's subscribing to and using their services. Um, you know, when I when I uh, did some uh, bit, bit, Bitcoin purchasing uh, from the exchange, they took as much 
personal information about me um, and made me fill out questionnaires and made me upload uh, identity documents okay. um, in order to conduct that transaction. Mm. Um, the question is, if I want to rent servers and get certificates and um, register domains, suspiciously like large commercial domains, why isn't that due diligence being done? And I think it's yeah. because these providers are not held accountable for the actions on their platforms, right? Exactly. Yeah. The, in the banking industry, and in the banking industry is by no means perfect, but by in the banking industry, your organization, say Deutsche Bank, mm -hmm. if criminal activity is going through your bank, you have skin in the game. You can't 100%. simply sit back and go, oh, we had no idea that these criminals were laundering money through our organization. I think we're going to see some pretty aggressive know thy customer legislation coming into this whole uh, cyber um, infrastructure situation. I think that'll help. But I think. Okay, but then do we see. Uh cyber tax havens for as a direct result of that right do we surely not then move to a world you used the analogy of finance and i think that is the perfect one because if you're having know thy customer regulation on u.s soil you know maybe there will be offshore u.s islands that you can nonetheless operate from as if you were a u.s company you know using those same structures that people avoid tax with uh, you know, through the British Virgin Islands or whatever, in order to, to continue your nefarious operations uh, without being able to be looked at by the American government. Absolutely. I mean, we're going to have space hosting, right? Yeah. We're, we're going to have we're going to have hosting providers located in international waters. Right. I mean, yes, because for every change you know, that we do to support, you know, lawful trade and law enforcement, there are going to be folks that um use those amazing minds they have, the cyber Lex Luthers, if you will, <laughs> to yeah. do cyber crime, right? Because yeah, yeah. that's what they do. And there are bulletproof hosting today's and dark web uh, sites and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but, and I think, you know, again, perfect opportunity to talk about uh, the big problem in big China. Yeah. Because in order to have this stuff work, you have to have international consensus and you have to have an equal playing field. And I feel right now that our Western morality and civility and rules in terms of how we conduct business and how we're supposed to conduct business and how we're regulated to conduct business is putting us at a huge disadvantage against countries like China who seem to have complete disregard for a westernized set of values and cultural approach. Yeah, I mean, how do you mean a disadvantage? So you're you're saying because we're playing by the rules, we're uh, sort of slightly screwing ourselves over? Well, so I'll give you a great example, right? We have a very distasteful regime in Africa. Okay. Western nations are prohibited by law from dealing with that country because it is sanctioned, because we know they are using those weapons to probably, most likely, kill some sort of indigenous um, uh, potential uh, you yeah. know, democracy. A, a minority population somewhere, yeah. <laughs> the Chinese 
have no compunction about selling, despite the fact that a ton of nations at the UN level have said, oh, by the way, these are bad people doing bad things to their own people. The Chinese are be like, eh, we'll sell yeah. to them anyways. And they're doing this in cyber as well, right? Yeah. You know, we, we saw, you know, back in, I think it was around 2010, 20, uh, even 2014, a keynote from uh, General Alexander about the biggest transfer of intellectual property and wealth going on from the United States to China. Mm. The same regime that has now been globally accused of genocide, right, yeah. has been suppressing a democratic movement in, in Hong Kong yeah. um, and essentially is holding two Canadians uh, hostages as a result of the ongoing fisticuff over the um, extradition of the, of the, of the CFO of, uh, oh. of Huawei in, yeah. in Canadian jail awaiting transfer to the United States. And what has our response been? Tepid at best. Okay, but what, what, <laughs> yes, I, sorry, to, to first of all agree with you, it has been tepid. Um, but the way in which we go about engaging, okay, what do we want? Uh, are we going to march in there and, and uh, topple a regime? Are we going <laughs> to rerun the, op are we going to rerun the opium wars? Uh, we can't do that because they've got a bigger army than us anyway. Um, like, okay, it was cyber retaliation. The US has said, uh, you know, they're, they're rolling in place a plan that they're going to hit Russia where the Russian administration knows, but it won't necessarily be obvious to the public just to demonstrate, you know, where some cyber red lines are. That's an interesting response. I, I don't really see it deterring Russia very much from um, carrying on its uh, pretty nefarious dealings with most Western democracies. And, uh, you know, if we were to do that with China, the risk is that they left a ton of backdoors in all of the Microsoft Exchange servers that they, uh, well, that numerous Chinese groups uh, eventually piled in on when Microsoft released the out of bound patch earlier this year. So then it's kind of like, a, is this a mutually assured cyber destruction? Uh, whereby there has to be a standoff because any action from one side will precipitate dis uh, detrimentally destructive action from the other and thus melt down all over the world. Um, I think there is an argument for that, but I find that less compelling because of the way in which um, both world diplomacy and the global economy have moved on since the initial introduction of mutually assured destruction as a concept in the first nuclear era, you know, uh, like, okay, stupidly, the British government has recently said, we're going to ramp up our nuclear uh, capability. And it's like, I, I, we don't even need to go into that here. It's the most ridiculous step that a Western nation has made for a very long time. Um, it sends all the wrong signals. Uh, we, you know, what are we going to do if they hack our critical national infrastructure? We're going to chuck several nukes at them. That's it no, seems that's, a little bit disproportionate. Well, no, I mean the argument from the from the upper echelons might be, well, they've destroyed our society in a certain way by bringing down our entire power grid, so we're going to destroy their society anyway. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. But you know, um, the the changes since nuclear weapons were a mutually assuring destruct had a, had that capability 
like China needs us. It, do, it, it has an awful lot of customers in Africa who I think could not necessarily be said to be as engaged in the global supply chain as 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 intricately as Europe, China, um, sort of, and and the Americas. If uh, China was to go about bringing down the power grid in, say, Germany, as it as Russia did in the, the Ukraine. Um, that I think would have a far different and more negative impact on China itself. So I, I, I don't really see the the mutually assured cyber destruction thing as a a, a particularly compelling um, way in which um, we can retaliate. Like if if the if the United States was to uh, sort of try to fire a shot across the bows of Beijing, um, I. I I, I, I don't think it would have a great deal of impact on the behavior of China itself, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. They have shown absolutely no compunction in just continuing to build the camps in Chanjing, uh, to continue doing deals with regimes all over the world um, that most, as you said at the beginning of this segment, would consider unsavory um, uh, types. Um, they, from what I've read, as a general rule, the Chinese uh, way of doing business is one that says prioritize making profit over any consideration, which perhaps is why they have less compunction doing deals with despots. Um, and so I completely take your point, but I think that was just a long way round for me to say, I literally have racked my brains and cannot see how we pressure them into changing their behavior. I think it's an interesting uh, global uh, sort of chess play, if you will. Be a complete bastard. Once you have what you want, then give up something that you're prepared to give away. Yeah. I see this in the Putin play of right now he's massed troops on the border of the Ukraine, and everybody's getting nervous about that. I feel like he will trade the Ukraine for as a response to an American cyber attack that turns the lights off in major Russian cities. Interesting. So he won't respond directly back to the United States. No, he already he won the first round, which was, hey, I'm going to compromise your government. And, yeah. uh, you know, um, and if you provoke me, I'll do something that I know you can't respond with. Because I know that we're not going to go to war over the Ukraine, despite, you know, all the noises that are being made. And the mm -hmm. fact that many European countries are dependent on Russian oil uh, to get themselves through the next winter. Yeah. Right. And no government is going to risk putting their own citizens at starving to death in the cold. Well, that's uh, yeah. So that's an interesting point. I mean, like the U.S. just put pressure on Germany to stop constructing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Right. So. That's the that's exactly what you're saying. That's the retaliation in kind from the U.S. side. Um, I don't know quite how Germany goes about, as you say, keeping its citizens warm if they do turn off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So, you know, I mean, it seems that uh, China, Russia and their various satellites hold most of the cards at this point. But it's very hard to believe that to be the case, quite simply because actually we do know that the uh, political uh, environment for Putin in Russia 
is precarious. You know, whilst he maintains the support of the majority of the people, Navalny's imprisonment was perhaps a misstep. Uh, that's he's, he's getting a lot of flack for that. Um, the economy is extremely weak. You know, it is not a robust country, uh, you know, with with debt, with unrivaled resources, um, monetary resources, that is. Um, China, on the other hand, really does seem to be able to do um, almost what it wants at this stage. There is very little moral um, imposition that we can put on it to make it change course. And I therefore, I do think that engaging in, uh, you know, talks is probably the only way to uh, try and try and get it to shift, shift its feet in the, in the, in the right way. Well, on that note, and with thoughts about a more prosperous and more stable place as we emerge from the pandemic, yeah. thank you today. Uh, I think it was a really interesting discussion, and these are not easy problems to solve uh, that our world leaders need to engage upon, because at the end of the day, it's not really the government that suffers, it's the people that um, have that government. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next month. Thanks, Ian.